Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Gerald Kwan. Gerald is an assistant professor at UC Davis. Gerald, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thanks for the invitation to interview with you. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm looking forward to diving into some of the work that you've been doing around applying deep learning to genomics. Uh, But before we do that, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and how you started working in the intersection of those two fields. So I, I guess my my career in, in computational biology started out in uh, in uh, my first year undergrad actually, where I was initially slated to enter a computer science undergraduate program. And about two weeks before I started, I got a piece of paper in the mail uh, from my university telling me that they started a new bioinformatics program and were wondering if I uh, I was interested in joining. And I actually initially reject I initially turned them down because I thought the idea of kind of studying biology with computers was uh, you know, it didn't seem that interesting. But after after a couple uh, semesters, um, I just happened to meet a professor doing some really interesting kind of high throughput data analysis, looking at proteins and, and their kind of three dimensional structures. And he was interested in kind of predicting these three D structures uh, from their kind of linear protein sequence. And I was it just kind of piqued my interest. And from there, I just kind of uh, yeah, I, I never really looked back. And so, do you currently sit in what, which department at Davis? So I'm in the Department of Molecular and Cell Bio, um, which is a little bit of a yeah. It's uh, it's kind of an interesting interesting place to be because I uh, you know my undergrad uh, again was kind of in computer science bioinformatics and then I, I took a brief break and went to uh, biochemistry, tried to do a master's in biochemistry before I went back to computer science uh, for my PhD. Um, and I think this kind of background where I have a little bit of biology and a little bit of uh, computer science background kind of appealed to my department. And so that's mm-hmm. that's kind of how I ended up here. Awesome. Awesome. And so you were recently at the uh, NVIDIA GTC conference where you gave a presentation on deep domain adaptation and generative models for single cell genomics. Uh, what's the the main challenge that you're talking about in that presentation? Well, so basically, in in the field of kind of molecular biology, uh, you know, these kind of genomics technologies are the biologist's way of kind of getting really uh, high-resolution snapshots of of different kinds of, like, human tissues and so on. And the work that uh, I spoke about specifically is is kind of on this emerging field called single-cell genomics, where you can actually do these measurements on on individual cells, whereas kind of historically you had to... I uh, kind of use like really big tissues in order to get enough sample to to generate this data, and so it's it's kind of exciting because uh, you know because you can do measurements on these on these single cells, you can generate you know vast orders of magnitude more data than than you could previously. And so now, um, whereas before, when you look at kind of human data, you could only uh, generate data for say like a couple hundred tissues or or samples. Now we can generate like millions of data for millions of samples, and so that it's really exciting because you can now we can sort of uh, apply a lot of the kind of methods from like deep learning and so on because we have this large amount of data that we we didn't previously have. What are some of the things that you're trying to understand through these analyses or diseases that you're trying to uh, identify or fight? We try to study a, a couple of diseases of interest. So these include things like cancer and Alzheimer's disease and schizophrenia. 
And so the the basic premise is that you know if you want to kind of understand how say a disease like uh, schizophrenia works, you you know you kind of want to take uh, say samples from uh, brain tissues from uh, sort of so-called healthy normal people, and you want to take them from these you know say people with schizophrenia, and then you want to somehow be able to compare. Uh, you know the the data that you get from both of these groups of patients in order to figure out what changed when, uh, you know, when schizophrenia happens at different stages. And so, in again, in sort of this uh, in our work that we presented at uh, the GTC, uh, the tool that we developed was specifically designed to basically build models of genomic data in both kind of normal people and schizophrenia people, and then kind of use uh, techniques from domain adaptation to kind of understand. Um, how the two are related. Uh, and this is maybe a, a more domain-specific question, but uh, for something like schizophrenia, it strikes me as more of a systemic problem uh, than a, you know, something that you would see in a single cell. How does, what's the, uh, the connection? So you're right. So, you know, dis- complex diseases like schizophrenia, have, uh, you know, there's many factors that contribute to the development of schizophrenia. In our particular work, we we look at, we try to look at whole regions of the brain and how these whole regions may change between normal uh, people with schizophrenia. And so the, the reason why this single cell stuff is really interesting is because um, previously, if you wanted to, like we know that in the brain, there's like lots of different types of, of cells and tissues in there. And so previously, when people did these kind of studies, they could only take, say, an entire brain, kind of chop it up and then look at a snapshot of the whole brain and compare whole, whole normal versus whole schizophrenic. But now, because we can measure things at single cell, we can take, we can measure like millions of cells in a single normal person, millions of cells in a single schizophrenia person, and then try to compare and say, okay, of these million cells I got from one normal, one schizophrenic person, which subset of these million cells is actually changing? Because not all, like not you know, not everything in the brain will change when you, you know, get schizophrenia. And so we've talked about uh, genomics here. Is the data that you're fundamentally looking at, is it uh, sequence data or is it some kind of imaging data or a combination of the two? So the data that, the data that sort of comes from the biologist comes in the form of like, uh, you know, DNA, DNA or RNA sequence um from these patients, but that kind of gets converted in this kind of data pre-processing steps, such, such that uh, the data that we look at essentially is just it, it just boils down to matrices, where like columns of these matrices correspond to different cells from say a patient, and rows represent kind of different features of the cells that are measured through through genomics. Uh, so a feature, an example of a feature being like a, a known sequence or something, the existence of a known sequence or a SNP or something like that? Uh, so it would actually correspond to like a gene. And so the idea is that when you look at a cell within, uh, you know, a, a, a patient, you can measure, you can make many different types of measurements on the cells, but one common type of measurement is is called uh, a gene expression measurement. So the idea is that, you know, you have each cell has uh, DNA in it, but DNA by itself usually acts as kind of just a storage mechanism. And so for DNA to do anything, it actually, part, large parts of it get converted to to this molecule called RNA. And so what we're measuring, what each feature is measuring is how much of this kind of active RNA molecule gets produced from each part of the DNA. And so that's how we get like a vector 
for each cell where each component corresponds to how much activity we see from a given part of the genome. Okay. And so how does, where does domain adaptation and generative models, where do those come into your uh, workflow here? So our, our, the GTC talk was, uh, was basically discussing two different projects. So in terms of domain adaptation, the problem we were trying to solve there is that essentially the problem is when you, when you kind of look at, uh, when you look at these features of cells in normal versus schizophrenia people, uh, the and you do see so one of the one of the most common first tasks that people do when they when they get this kind of data is they they will do some you know dimensionality reduction and they'll sort of visualize these cells that they get from these normal and schizophrenic people and the first thing that you notice when you do this visualization is that uh, all of the cells that you collect from normal people separate very distinctly from uh, the cells that you get from schizophrenia people, and now this is kind of a problem because the you know your underlying goal is you know you you have these different types of cells represented in the normal and the schizophrenia people, and you ideally want to kind of in an unsupervised way match the right cell types from the normal and the schizophrenia people so that you can figure out for each type of cell how are they different across the two populations, and so uh, we use we basically. Uh, perform domain domain adaptation to take these cells that kind of look very different overall between normal and schizophrenic people and kind of merge them together such that cells of the same type basically look very similar to each other and so we can kind of match them across uh, across these two groups of people. So the adaptation really is in basically building model to say, okay, given this is what my data from the normal people look like, given this is what the data from the schizophrenic people look like, can I kind of match them such that the the distribution of my cells in this feature space uh, basically overlap. And so when you say the data looks very different between these two groups, in, in what sense? I mean, in, in some sense, that's what you want if you're trying to build a classifier that can determine whether a, a given cell indicates schizophrenia, for example. But it sounds like that's not the part of the process that you're working on here. So I guess uh, just to be more clear, uh, there are both kind of very large scale differences between normal and schizophrenic people, and then there's very kind of uh, smaller changes that are specific to each type of cell that is different between normal and schizophrenic people. And so, in a in a typical kind of analysis, in a typical kind of analysis, you want to first kind of characterize what are those very big changes that cause these. Uh, two different types of, uh, you know, these cells from these two types of people to reside in different regions of this feature space. And then conditioned on understanding what those big changes are, you want to then take away the effect of that big change such that now you can look at individual cell types and then ask, okay, for these individual groups of cells that are common between normal and schizophrenia, uh, you know, what's, what's different about them? What's the approach for doing that? There's been some previous work uh, published uh, basically these these class of models called uh, associative domain adaptation have previously re- been developed. And so in the associative domain adaptation problem, the problem they're trying to solve is that uh, they basically envision that you have, say, two different uh, data sets where you're trying to perform the same task. So they assume that you're trying to do classification in data set one and classification in data set two. And they assume that you have you know, you have the same labels that you're trying to classify in both data sets. Now, what the assumption that the original associative domain adaptation 
makes is that although the labels that you're trying to classify are the same, the distribution of the data is different. So given your feature space, the data in one data set sits in a different region of the feature space than the other. And so this their domain adaptation approach was designed to basically try to essentially learn kind of common features that are predictive of the same labels across these two different data sets. And so our, our approach is basically similar in the sense that uh, we have, you know, we have data in sort of two different regions of uh, the feature space corresponding to the normal and schizophrenia. But in, in our case, we're trying to do an unsupervised analysis. So we're trying to group cells that come from these two different domains, but we think represent the same cell type. And so we we basically uh, modified their domain app, original uh, supervised domain adaptation approach to do unsupervised uh, clustering across two data sets. And so the way that the, the approach works is that uh, it, it's a, a deep neural network and it, it looks it, it looks for all intents and purposes like an autoencoder. So, uh, you know, the first half of the network takes the data in the original feature space and it projects it down to a low dimensional uh, manifold. And then the, the second half of the network takes the low dimensional manifold and projects it back into some high dimensional space. But kind of unlike, unlike a typical autoencoder where the loss function that you're optimizing, it, you know, can be something like, say, squared loss, uh, sorry, squared error. Um, what our and what what our loss function is, and what the other domain adaptation loss function is, is it it, it actually uh, what we try to do is we try to find a low dimensional embedding uh, of the different cells such that the marginal distribution of the cells in the latent space overlap between the two data sets as much as possible. And so there's no kind of notion of kind of squared loss or reconstruction loss. Uh, that we're trying to optimize here. It's really just trying to match the uh, marginal distributions of the cells in the low-dimensional embedding space between the two different data sets. And so the this embedding space that you're creating when you're trying to overlap the two, that's essentially the domain ad- adaptation aspect of this. Is that right? Exactly. We're yeah, we're we're essentially adapting like one domain to another. We're we're distorting one. Uh, set of cells to match the marginal distribution of the other. So where does the domain adaptation fit in in your overall kind of end-to-end experimentation? Well, so what we do is we we take the the two uh, the cells from the two different groups. We do this adaptation of to bring them into the same region of the feature space, and that then allows us to match for an individual cell by cell basis. We can say, okay, this cell in the normal person corresponds to exactly this normal cell in the schizophrenic person. And then we can, that then allows us downstream to then look at those individual cells paired across normal and schizophrenic people and ask the question, how are they different in terms of the original features? And when you're talking about looking at these, uh, these different types of cells pre and post adaptation, are you, uh, are you taking the, output of the domain adaptation and using that to train a model or is it for more manual analysis? So one thing that I, I didn't quite discuss yet is I said that we, you know, we train this network to learn an embedding, a shared embedding space for both kind of the normal and schizophrenic people. But what I didn't talk about is that the, the other half of the network 
is still a decoder, and it's a decoder in the in the traditional sense where we learn the encoder separately, and then after we learn the shared embedding space, we train decoders to take cells from this shared embedding space and project them back into the normal versus schizophrenic data set. And so this is this is important for for the following reason. So the reason why domain adaptation is necessary for this kind of genomic analysis is that in the ideal biological experiment, you would be able to take a normal cell, you would be able to kind of assay its, you know, make those measure, high dimensional measurements. You would then be able to kind of give it schizophrenic and give it schizophrenia in some sense and then measure its activity again. And so in that sense, you'd be able to take exactly the same cell with kind of before and after you've applied this, this phenotype, this disease phenotype, and then see exactly what change occurred in that cell due to this, due to this stimulus. And so this isn't possible in real biology because to kind of uh, you know make these high-dimensional measurements, you have to kill the cell, and so you can't measure the same cell twice. But because we can train decoders which take any cell in this shared embedding space, project it to normal or schizophrenia, we can now kind of simulate uh, you know what would happen if you took one cell and you gave it either you know you made it either a normal cell or a schizophrenia cell. And so now we can treat these projections as paired data and and then ask on a per cell basis, you know, how do they how do they differ between between these two conditions? And so so getting back to your original question, we don't, you know, the downstream analysis is is still kind of somewhat manual, but we we are kind of trying to do something a little bit smarter by using these decoders to kind of simulate these these biological experiments that we can't do. Right. Right. But ultimately you're not trying to like train a classifier to determine, you know, given a cell, whether it's uh, normal or schizophrenic or not. It's more using the domain adaptation to allow you to more kind of manually compare the characteristics of the these two types of cells absent the kind of broad spectrum differences between exactly. the, the two. Yeah. So that's the domain ad- adaptation piece, and then you you're using generative models as a part of this as well. Where do they come in? Right, and so the idea behind these generative models is that um, one of the kind of really hot research areas in biology right now is to kind of try to understand how uh, cells work together, right? And so you know there there's this kind of this big focus on okay, can we you know do these genomic measurements on these individual cell single cell levels but part of the thing is that when you look at like you know a disease like cancer for example cancer is not really just kind of a, a collection of individual cancer cells doing their own thing they're kind of there's a lot of crosstalk between them uh, they're kind of helping each other out to kind of you know metastasize and so on and so uh, the idea of our generative model is that we kind of want to is that you know it's very easy nowadays to take cells in isolation and, you know, measure their genomics profile to see what they're doing. And it's also easy to take a collection of them together when they're working together and measure as a whole, uh, you know, what they're doing. And so now what we're trying to do is we're trying to develop models where generative models, where we have generative models for each individual cell based on measurements we make on single cell level. And then these component generative models essentially inform a very larger generative model, which try to explain what happens when you put them all together, if that makes sense. And so 
we're basically learning these nested generative models to say, okay, what can we learn about cells in isolation? And then can we explain uh, how they work together and why that's different from just the sum of the individual components itself? Wow, there's a lot there. So these uh, nested generative models, are they end-to-end trained or are you training them on a cell-by-cell basis and then kind of ensembling or aggregating to create the system level? So we're, we're trying. We're basically training them end to end by uh, optimizing. So basically, for example, the you know the component generative models that kind of handle what generating individual cell types look like. Those are influenced both by our data on the individual cells themselves as well as kind of the cells altogether. Whereas other components that take these, whereas the other pieces of the bigger model that take the individual components and somehow add them together, those are only influenced by the data on kind of the bulk the bulk cells, all of the cells together. And so we kind of try to optimize them all. We try to optimize the parameters of all of these parts of the network at the same time. And, and so is the starting, the underlying data set that you're using to build up these generative models, is it the same type of data that we discussed previously for the domain adaptation piece? Right. So the the parts, the type of data used to train the individual generative models of each cell type are the same type of data as we we just talked about with the domain adaptation. The type of data that we collect to measure how they're working together is is actually from an older technology. So kind of genomics technologies that don't work on single cell levels, but they work on measuring genomics of a collection of cells together. And so we're kind of mixing data that are kind of from a newer generation and an older generation. What type of GAN approach did you use for this? Uh, so we actually, we started out with variational autoencoders, actually. We tried different types of, different variants of variational autoencoders. Uh, it turns out for this specific problem, the, in terms of performance, uh, you know, this specific variant didn't seem to make uh, such a big difference. But we are trying to, we are also trying more recently to kind of combine, so I mean, a number of people have looked at this before, but uh, basically uh, use like deep graphical models, where again, like the generative models are, you know, they they use proper probability distributions, but they also use neural networks in there as well. So the, vari- the variational autoencoder, you started this project using variational autoencoders for your generative models. Uh, but then did you ultimately evolve to using more of a GAN type of a model? We actually have tried, <clears throat> we've tried GANs in the past. We found they were a little bit more difficult to train. And so part of the issue here when, you know, part of the issue we have in the field of computational biology is that we're, we're building these models in part to try to understand something about biology and disease but also a lot of these kind of problems. So this, the problem that we're trying to solve with these generative models is, is what's called deconvolution. Um, and this, uh, the problem of deconvolution arises in many different areas of biology as well. And so part of what we're trying to do is, is also develop kind of usable software that bench scientists, bench biologists who uh, may not have a lot of experience training neural nets, for example, can easily just kind of pick up and apply to their own problems. And so we found that uh, using at least you know when comparing VAEs versus GANs, uh, the, uh, the VAE-based models were easier for other people to train and use on their own data, whereas the GANs uh, seem to be much harder to get to work out of the box. 
Um, Got it. And so I, I guess from a more practical perspective, we uh, our current models are based on VEs just because it's it's easier to give to other people to use on their own problems. And so you've got the, the domain adaptation piece and the generative uh, models. Are those... Do those then come together as part of this pipeline, or are they just both tools in your tool bag that you use to study these cells and the uh, the conditions that create them? So they're uh, they're they're basically two related but but distinct tools uh, that we're using on on similar problems. So so we're we're basically part of a uh, part of a project called the Human Cell Atlas, whose goal is in part to Kind of characterize human tissues and organs at the single cell level, and and characterize how they look under normal and disease conditions. And so, both of these tools, uh, you know, one which enables comparison of data collected under different experiments, uh, which is the do- domain adaptation, and the other deconvolution, which is a tool to help us understand how do you know why are human tissues uh, not just collections of their individual components. I, I sort of see both of these tools as, you know, ways to to study this to study the same problem essentially. Are there examples you can share of insights that these tools ultimately led to? Up to now, we've basically been um, working mostly on kind of the development aspect of this tool. So we've been developing it and um, kind of validating that it works on uh, you know data sets with known ground truths. And so now we're kind of in the we're in the process of applying these tools in in a number of different ways. And so uh, to give an example of, uh, you know, maybe a more practical application of this tool, uh, we're working, uh, you know, one in one problem we're looking at, we're trying to understand how, for example, these malaria parasites, um, you know, transmit themselves across, uh, you know, across various uh, populations. And so, you know, the thing about malaria is that, Malaria is kind of an interesting parasite because it it has this like life cycle where, for a single uh, basically for a single parasite at the end of this life cycle, it has to make a decision. You know, do I uh, asexually reproduce or do I sexually reproduce, and therefore uh, you know, which therefore leads to transmission. And so, kind of understanding, you know, if you can get a good grasp of how these malaria parasites decide when and how to to transmit to other hosts, then you could potentially develop therapies to stop it. And so that's in in this specific problem, we are working with some other scientists to to basically compare malaria uh, parasites that were going undergoing kind of sexual or asexual reproduction and doing this domain adaptation to then ask the question, you know, at what point do these two different do these malaria parasites, you know, going down two different fates uh, change? And so by applying this tool, we identified a small set of, of genes, which now we think if we kind of uh, delete these genes from the malaria or somehow inhibit them from working, we might be able to stop their transmission. Um, but this kind of work is still, uh, the downstream application of these tools is still kind of something that we're now just getting into now that we've kind of established that the tools are working. Uh, well, certainly the, the application to... Malaria could be hugely impactful if we're able to identify and kind of stop that uh, whatever the sequence is. That's, yeah, the transmission. Obviously, the transmission, but whatever the mechanism is that is causing the transmission. Were there other things that you covered in your presentation that uh, it would make sense to jump into? 
Um, so I think, uh, you know, one of the things that we briefly touched on that we're really excited about is, is kind of the, the use of, uh, the use of machine learning to do, um, what, what people sometimes call like multimodal data integration. And so the idea here is that, um, sort of in biology, again, a lot of people, including, including, uh, you know, my research lab, you know, do, we do a lot of analyses at kind of like the DNA level, which is kind of very low level. And we, you know, our goal is always to somehow tie what happens at the low level to, you know, the the, the big things like, you know, are you going to get a disease or not? But, you know, tying these low-level events to these high-level things like disease incidents is sometimes really hard because there's a lot of steps between, you know, things that happen at DNA level and things that happen at, you know, the whole human level. And so um, nowadays, there's kind of more and more interest in people collecting data from the same kinds of cells or tissues at both kind of like the DNA level and at the whole cell level and at the kind of tissue level, and then trying to link all of these things together such that we can, instead of just trying to predict, okay, if something happened, if this event happens at DNA, you know, am I going to get disease? Now we can try to predict, okay, if something happens at the DNA level, does that somehow change how my like tissues are organized or how my brain is like structured? And then how does that then kind of impact disease? And so um, I think, uh, you know, for example, we're working with some people at the Allen Institute for Brain Science, where they're kind of, uh, they're doing some really cool experiments where they can take certain types of brain cells and they can uh, use like electrophysiology or, you know, they can take pictures of the cell to look at their shape and then also measure what's happening at the genome level. And so now we're trying to uh, build models which can uh, basically tie together things at the DNA level, at the kind of electrophysiology level, and at the the imaging level uh, to try to uh, get a better understanding of how do events at the DNA change our, our risk of disease. And so this is, uh, uh, you know, this is kind of exciting because, you know, now we, you know, there's obviously tons and tons of work in the computer vision field for doing things like, you know, doing all things related to image processing and you know, understanding understanding images. And so now we can, you know, our goal over the next few years is to try to incorporate, you know, what's happening in like computer vision with, you know, our work in sort of genomics, uh, along with, you know, what people have been doing modeling neuroscience data and try to put it all together to try to kind of really understand what what's happening in, in biology and the human cell. Well, very interesting work, uh, Gerald. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us about it. Yep, definitely. Thanks, Sam. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.